0: good morning again. I know, you're not sure if you should say it again, but yeah, thank you anyhow. Good morning. Good to see you all again. Um, Before I get started this morning on the the message for the morning, um, I just want to thank a couple people. Um, One, you should know that, in case you don't know, we're involved in an initiative called Together 2013. It's a partnership, a collaboration between five different organizations in the Paradise Area our church, Keystone Church, Peckway Valley um, School District, the factory, and Paradise Township, which were working together for the common good. Yesterday, finished up the first, really, the first of our three, um, first project, uh, and it was the third Saturday in a row that we were working on road cleanup in the Paradise Township area. It was something we were working on with the township, and I just wanted to report that we finished it. Um, So that was good. If I could, just so you know, Ben and Lorraine aren't going to want to do this, but if Ben and Lorraine, just so we know who you guys are, if you guys could just stand for us real quick, that would be great. They were our point people. They were our point people on making that happen. Um, Ben, I think, took all the credit and Lorraine did all the work. That's about how it (laughs) normally works, right? Um, But we're really grateful for all you did. If you participated in road cleanup, could you do me a favor? And I just want to see how many of you all did that at some point or the other. If you were involved in road cleanup, go ahead and stand up so we can kind of see you guys too. Yeah, very good. Thanks, guys. Excellent. Thank you so much. So that's great. That's done. That's off the list. um, And we're continuing to move forward. You should know that one of the next things we're moving into is our run, ride, walk, which is on June 15th. Uh, Last year, we had 178 total registrants for that. As of this morning, we have about 185. Um, so we've already eclipsed that. Yeah, it's good. And, uh, and there's, there's still time. Now, for you this morning, if you're a procrastinator and you like free things, today is for you because today really is the very last day to get your free T-shirt if you want to sign up for that event. You can walk, run, or ride, or do a combination thereof. On the way out in the foyer, there's a sign-up deal there. You can sign up there, and, um, and we'll take your info, and then we'll get you your T-shirt for that day. Okay, great way to support us. Um, on your way out there, speaking of, speaking of which, um, you'll also notice a table with T-shirts on it, if you haven't seen it already. That was from the funeral that happened here last night. Um, the Real family, Joshua Reel, was, uh, was killed last Sunday morning, early, about 2 in the morning, um, and, uh, in, a, in an automobile accident and his services were here last night. Um, Chuck Holt, Director of the Factory Ministries, um, myself were involved in that. I want to thank the many of you who work behind the scenes to pull that off for us. Um, it was a great event to be, it's great to be able to host that event here. And I appreciate the work that you guys put into that, making that happen. Those t-shirts um, came because of, in Josh's memory, he, it was said of him that he would give the, the shirt office back to anyone. So the family wanted to bring t-shirts in um, and then donate that to a charity. So we're going to do that here this week, take the T-shirts and donate them to a charity in his honor. Um, so that's, that's what's going on out there. Um, so we've, we've kind of come, um, we, we've come now, as I kind of transition here into the message time, we've come now uh, seven weeks into a series that we're calling Just Did It. And this uh, series is actually a study in the Book of Romans. And the reason we're calling it Just Did It, and now this is week eight of nine, Is because uh, what we believe is that Jesus did for us on the cross what we can't do for ourselves, that he did for us the work of accomplishing righteousness and finding out, um, figuring out how to make peace with God. Uh, And we can never do that on our own. Now, at one level, if you've been a church person at all, that message sounds pretty familiar. We can't do the work God can, yea, God boo me okay we kind of get the general sense of that but I want to go a little bit farther with this and to be honest as I was here last night with the with the real family and Josh's funeral um, and reflecting on that event it made me realize again this is just so true that at so many levels we just want we want to know that we have peace with God we just want to know that we want to know that we have peace with one another but in particular we want to know that somehow there exists a way to have peace with God. And yet, intuitively, we also know that we can't achieve it on our own. We kind of know that because we know who we are. We know that we're not consistent enough or faithful enough or good enough to do this on our own. And so this series, as we look into the book of Romans, is really about us kind of coming back to Jesus, coming back to the cross and saying, okay, we need to continue to drive ourselves toward the grace of the cross, not the righteousness that I can create. What Paul has been doing in the first two chapters of the book of Romans is kind of giving some background to the gospel and telling us that Jesus has been um, predicted from the Old Testament. He's kind of spoken to the Jews and Gentiles in Rome and said, you guys need to figure out how to get along. Um, You've all kind of sinned and you're all kind of equal before God's sight. He's been breaking down some barriers between Jews and Gentiles, and today he's going to work on breaking down another barrier. And to be honest with you, which is good for me to try to do, right, um, to be honest with you, this one is a barrier that is very difficult for us to break down because naturally we almost don't even see that we hold the value that Paul is going to kind of drive away at. For example, when, my, uh, when I was younger, my dad used to um, eat watermelons. How many of you all like watermelons? You're watermelon fans? Yeah, it's coming out. The season is coming. I personally, this dislike them significantly i don't know why i have some issues with that but here's what my my dad would do basically he would um he would open the window in the kitchen and then he would spit out the watermelon seeds right you all do that anyone come on now no one's ever spit out watermelon seeds thank you we also know that you pick your nose Uh, uh, (laughs) no we really do actually i'm not just picking on it Okay, so here's the deal. My dad would open the window and spit out watermelon seeds, and then in, in time, in time, with no work at all, you know what would happen, right? And here they come. Here they come. In time, here come these watermelon seeds. It's amazing, actually. You know, all that you're doing is eating this thing, and it's in. it goes out. And to me, as a kid, it's kind of neat to see a thing fly out there. And it lands, and after, in, in time, a watermelon plant grows. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because you do nothing to create that Fruit, right? I mean, all you do is you spit it out the window, and you don't even, my dad didn't even cultivate anything. He didn't work the soil. You just spit it out, and it landed, and it found the right context, and it grew, right? You seen that? And here's the thing for today, that what I want to, what I think is here in the the scriptures is something that grows so naturally within us that we don't even have to cultivate this. We don't have to work hard to say, I want to try to do that. This is one of those values that we hold so naturally and so intuitively that it just grows within us without us even thinking about it. It takes no work, no work for us to hold this value. And here's what I want to say. This value, holding this value, is one of the most um, insidious, it's one of the most deceptive ways that that Satan will get us moving away from Jesus and the cross and moving more towards self-reliance. And really it's this. If you think about it this way, what I want to talk about—the seed of—it's the seed of morality. Okay? The seed of morality, and really, Paul is going to talk about it in a minute. About he's going to talk about keeping the law and keeping the law. But for us, we're like we don't keep the. law. I don't know what you mean by keeping the law. I'm going to translate that. When I use the word morality, I'm saying that um, I'm talking about the the um, the tendencies that we have to encourage our children and to ourselves to say we need to raise children and we need to be people who are good, kind, respectful, uh, and and loving people. That we need to be a a people who are moral. We don't want to raise the kid who's the kicker and the screamer and the biter and the yeller and the one who's in the principal's office and who's doing this thing. We don't want to raise that kind of kid. We don't want to be that kind of person who ends up doing the quote-unquote bad things in the society. We want to raise and we want to be people who would say who would be considered moral and right and good and so what we tend to do kind of intuitively speaking is we just want to raise we speak to our kids no be good be good be good say please thank you please thank you please you can't get the cookie till you say please thank you we want to raise nice kids We want to be nice people. And so here's what we kind of think. Here's what we kind of think. The context is right for this. We kind of think if we raise good kids, if we raise moral kids, if we emphasize morality within our lives, our lives are going to end up better at a variety of levels. So check this out. We think morality will lead to a variety of things. If we're moral people, we will get better grades in school. It's kind of funny, but it's true. Here's what that means. If I'm a moral kid, if my kid is moral, they're good in school, they're kind, they're right, they obey their teacher, they're going to end up learning better than the one who doesn't. They're going to end up getting the explanation than the one who doesn't. I want to raise moral kids who get better grades. I also kind of want to be a moral person because I think if I'm moral, I'll likely get a better job because, frankly, people will like me if I'm moral compared to immoral. And the moral people get the good jobs and the immoral people don't get the good jobs. So I want to raise kids who are good and kind and nice. So that people like them and that my friends will want to hire them when they finish school. Because if I raise a kid who's crazy, no one's going to want to hire him. So if I, if I focus my life on morality, my kid will get a better, a better job. Which also means that they're going to be better making more money. And they're also probably going to be better at money management. Because if you're immoral, you're spending your money on things that are bad compared to things that are good, and we can define good and bad, but if you're immoral, you're doing bad things, and if you're moral, you're doing good things. You're doing good things with your money. So if you're moral, you're going to be better with your money, and who doesn't like someone who's good with their money? Because if you're good with your money, then you have better stuff. You know, man, you have a better car, you have a better bike, you have a better guitar, you have a better cabin a better home because you've been good and you've been kind and you did not spit at your teacher you were never disrespectful you were never suspended way to go you were good and you get better stuff because of that oh and by the way you also have a better career you're going to keep advancing because well people are going to like you you're going to be moral you'll probably end up with a better marriage as well because immoral people They have bad marriages, and moral people have good marriages. I mean, moral people are nice to one another. They're they're good, they're kind, they're forgiving, they're patient. I mean, who doesn't like to be with moral people? But there are people who are immoral. They have worse marriages than the ones we have. And then, if you're lucky, you have a better marriage, and you probably have better kids, because your kids are going to look at you, moral mom and dad, with better stuff, and better job, and better career, and better marriage, and say, man, I want to be better, so how do I be better By being moral, be better, be better. And then finally, I'm going to have a better reputation. It's all going to steamroll, and then I'll end up with a better retirement. So I can be a moral retired person playing moral shuffleboard somewhere in the world with better kids who are getting up getting better jobs and better careers and better stuff so they can have kids who are better and they can retire better because they're good and they're kind and people like them. Does it take much for me to convince you that this is part of our society? Does it take much for me to convince you that this is part of what is hardwired within us? To want to raise kids and to be people who are moral. It doesn't take much for that seed to grow within us. But what if? What if morality, as a defining life principle, instead of leading to all of this, what if it didn't lead to any of this at all? What if if your life and my life, when focused on morality, leads not to that, but to a lifeless existence? What if this is more true than what you just saw? And here's what Paul wants to deconstruct within us. And that is this statement here, that morality, as life's primary guiding principle, will never produce life. Morality, as life's primary guiding principle, will never produce life for you or for me. That if my world is centered and focused around morality, all that you want and I want will never be achieved. Because morality never, never, never produces life on its own. You don't believe me, so let's go to the text and see it there. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one near you, it's in the few around you. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is our gift to you today. You can have that, take that home with you. Um, we're in Romans chapter 3. Um, Romans is the sixth book in the New Testament, so the back third of your Bible. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those are the four Gospels, and then the book of Acts, and then after that, Romans. So it's book number six, the back third of your Bible, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. And Paul is writing now to the the people who are trying to figure out how to work together in the the city of Rome. And he asks the question now, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? He's speaking to Jews now by that we. Are we Jews any better than Gentiles who are immoral? So are the moral Jews, quote-unquote moral Jews, any better than, quote-unquote, immoral Gentiles? Not at all. He says, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all, and what's the next two words? Under sin. That they're all under sin. And so, that is the umbrella of, for the next eight verses, for verses 10 to 18, that everyone is under sin. So in order to explain that, he then takes, he makes a casserole. I hate casseroles personally. Well, I don't hate them. They may not be the best thing in the world that people invented. But anyhow, he takes kind of a casserole of ideas from the Old Testament and he brings some Old Testament stuff and puts it all together and brings several Old Testament passages together in verses 10 to 18. And so he quotes from the Psalms in here. And he says this, as it is written. So this is, okay, this is now, this is an explanation of how in the world is it that we are all under sin. What do you mean by we are all under sin? And then he's like, well, let me tell you what I mean by the fact that we are all under sin. Here's it, as it is written, all right? Verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even, what? One. There is no one who understands, no one who, what? Seeks God. There's no one. Okay, so this is the broad term. There's no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands. None who seeks God. Verse 12. Then he says, all have turned away. They have become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace. They do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And I'm telling you, I don't let my kids play with kids like that. Right? I mean, seriously. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison... The poison of vipers is on their lips. Isn't that awesome? You you can use that next time. When you you catch your kid in in a line, the poison of vipers is on your lips. And then the background music will play in your living room and it'll be an amazing crescendo of parental authority and wonderfulness. Try that. Don't be confused with this section. When he starts to use the word they... The question becomes, who is he talking about? Because when I read that by default, I think, yeah, you're talking about them. You're using the word them. They are, they are, they are, which is a pretty safe position for me to read this text from. They are like that. They are like that. They are like this. But do not be confused. Who is he speaking to? Why is he even writing this? He's saying, all are under sin. And he says in verse 9, don't be confused. Jews and Gentiles are like. All are under sin. And then he says, as it is written, there is no one who seeks God, right? No one who is righteous. No one. And then he explains what that means. The they is me and the they is you. The they is us. And who hasn't had this experience? We didn't want to be deceitful when we started business, but man, it happens. I didn't, when I thought about having kids, and Jen and I were thinking about that, I didn't ever envision losing my temper and yelling, but it's happened, and it likely will happen again. I don't envision attacking people's character with subtle digs, little gossip that I hear, and a little bit of, twisting of facts. I don't envision doing that, but I do. And I I don't plan to go to bed at night stressing about the things of this world and being underconfident in God, but it happens. This is a description of me. This is a description of us. Deceit, perversions, failures, immorality, are a part of us. And it's incredibly depressing when you realize, man, I am being so inconsistent. I'm being so inconsistent. And what I want to do when I realize that is I want to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of buck up and figure this out. I'm going to be, my answer to, to not being moral enough is to try to be more moral. Right? I'm going to I'm going to buy a book. I'm going to post something on Facebook about a new resolution. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to I'm going to go to lunch with somebody. I'm going to just write down that I will never again look at that. I will never again talk like that. I will never again eat like that. I will never again think like that. I will never again whatever. I'll never whatever, 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 whatever. And when I feel like I fail, by default my reaction is I need to try Harder, why? Because morality is this seed that has been planted within me that says, you've got to be good. When you're good, better things happen than when you're bad. And then Paul continues in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be, what? Silenced. And the whole world held accountable to who? To God. Now we know, he says, that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law. So when, when, when morality, if you will, is speaking to me, when God's ideals are speaking to me, telling me right things to do, and I fail to do them, the intent of the law then is to silence me. And to say, you can't do that. You're never going to be able to do that. Silence. Stop talking. Stop it. You're accountable to God. You're accountable to God. Not in a a threatening way, but God is the one who's in charge here. Not you. And then he makes this statement in verse 20 that is a life changer if You and I will let it. Look at verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by what? Observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. I want you to hear yourself say that. Verse And so I want you to repeat that with me, and I want to read it with you aloud here. Ready? Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Here's what that means. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. God is never going to look at you and never going to look at your kids and say, man, they are, they are just holier for not going to the movies. They're, they are just holier and you are just more righteous because you never listen to that music. And that, that is so good of you. You, you, are, you are righteous. You are righteous because you did not dress like that other person who dressed differently. You are you are so right. You are just maybe just a hair more righteous. You're just a little bit more holy. I'm just a little happier with you. Because you didn't. Because you did. No one will ever be declared righteous by observing the law. Morality that promises better everything if you'll obey and do and conform points us to self-righteousness and self-dependency. Be your own God. Come on now, be good enough. Be strong enough. Confess enough if you need to to the right people, but come on, get it together. You can do this. Read more. Be more disciplined. Come on, come on, come on. You can do this. And it doesn't take much for that seed of morality to grow within us because the context is right. There are friends who will agree with this. Your family will agree with this. They want you to be good. And you want it because better things happen. In every relationship that I can think of, human to human, this works. Teacher to student. The student is like, I need to figure out what that teacher wants. And when I do what they want, I get better grades. It's as simple as that, right? The employee needs to figure out what does the employer want. When I figure it out and I conform to what they want, I get better treatment, maybe better pay. The spouse needs to figure out what does the other spouse want. And when I do that and I serve them and I love them, things go better. And I know that. The kid figures it out with the parent. I don't ask mom about that, but I do ask dad about that. And then things go well. In in every relationship I can think of, this is how and why it works. We figure out what someone wants and we do it. And things go well. And we apply the same thing to God. God, what do you want me to do in my life? You want me to be moral. You want me to be good. You want me to be obedient. Okay, I'm going to do it and you're going to like me. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to be a little more righteous. I'm going to do it, and I kind of expect a little bit better stuff, a little bit better, mm, a little bit more clear direction. The problem with this relationship with God is that we can never offer to God anything that's of substance to him. We just don't have it. The power of morality is incredible. The power of the moral pull to try to make ourselves our own God is an incredible pull. Check out what Paul writes later on in the book of Galatians. He writes in Galatians 3, he's asking the question what then, what then was the purpose of the law? And you might be asking, okay, Tim, fine, but isn't obedience important? Isn't morality important? Are you suggesting that we be immoral? Are you suggesting we don't obey? Are you suggesting that we put that all aside and just live like whatever we want to? Because I'm pretty sure that's wrong too. So what are you really saying? And here's the question what then is the point? What is the purpose of the law? And this is Paul's question in Galatians 3. And he goes on to write this. If a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. If a law was given, if if something you could do or I could do that was morally right could give us life, then righteousness would come through that. If all it took was that, then righteousness and life would come. However, the law was put in charge to lead us to who? Who? that we might be, and read that last phrase with me, that we might be justified by faith. Morality, if you will, the law was put in place so that when you sin and when I sin, I look at that and, ooh, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with me. And the wrong thing is I can never be good enough to do this. And the answer is not, let me try harder and read more and be more disciplined. The answer is, I am now, because of the grace of the law, because of the grace of my own sin, if you will, I am now becoming aware of my sin and aware that I can never save myself. I need a Savior outside of what the law and outside of what morality provides. Back to Romans 3. Look at your text again at the end of verse 20. He says, There, Rather, through the law, we become what? Conscious of sin. Through the law, through obeying, through trying to be good. Isn't that ironic? Through trying to be good, I become aware of how bad I am. Anyone ever try to obey every speed limit sign that you see? And when you see the cop and you're going down the highway... What happens in your heart? I mean, you felt it, right? Intuitively. You're like, oh, I'm so glad to see the cop. Because I have no worries about my righteousness. Through the law, we become conscious of sin. The law is that grace that reminds us I need a Savior. Through the law, I become conscious of sin. So the question is, when I fail, and here, here's the question. The question I want to ask you is this. What is my gut reaction when I fail and break my moral code? Or God's moral code. Okay? What is your gut reaction when you fail, when you blow it morally? And you break the code, whatever the code is. You do something you know is not right. You see within your kids. What is your gut reaction? What is your gut reaction? And here, let's reflect on this. Is it, let's compare these quickly. Is it disappointment versus gratitude? The person who has planted morality's seed in their life and wants to see it grow into better everything, better grades, better money, better job, better marriage, better kids, better retirement, better everything. The person who's there living in morality says, I'm just disappointed in myself. Man, I can't believe I blew it again. Again, I did that. Again, I failed. Again, when am I ever going to get this through my thick skull? I'm just so disappointed in myself. Man, I've got to to try harder. In other words, I've got to be more moral. I have to be a better God to myself. I have to be a better Savior because God is counting on me to be righteous. Compared to, wow, (laughs) man. I blew it, I looked at that again, I thought about that again, I said that again, I was deceptive again, not caring at all again the way, I did that again, I can't believe I did that again. I am so, I'm so grateful, not for my sin, but I'm so grateful for the forgiveness and grace of Jesus on the cross. I'm so grateful that I know, I, I can't even keep my own ideals, let alone God's ideals, but I am, I am so grateful. God's forgiveness reaches this far into my life, that continually, 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 I do this, but he continues to reach. I'm so grateful for that. Think about it this way. Shame versus confession. The person who's kind of the moralist is saying, man, I blew it again. I've got to hide this thing. No no one needs to know about this. No one can know about this. Because my reputation is built on people thinking that I'm righteous. I mean, I can't tell anybody. You see, I can't tell anybody about this. I can't talk to my wife about this. I can't talk to my husband about this. I can't talk to my friends about this. Are you kidding me? Because I've got to control my image because morality is so important. I need people. If I'm going to have a better reputation, I can't go out there talking about the things that I blow. It doesn't work that way. I've got to control it. And sin management becomes a big part of a life like this compared to a point of confession saying, man, I blew this thing. I need to confess, what do I have to lose? Because I wasn't gaining anything in the first place. What, What do I have to lose? What do I have to gain? The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Because it's through him that we have righteousness by faith, not by works. And morality is that seed that gets planted in little hearts, in little minds that grows up to be a pretty wicked plant for all of us. Pretty deceptive. Pretty strong. says, come on, you can do this. You got this one. Be good, be kind. Be faithful, be righteous. And God is reminding us here, listen, it's never been about that. When you blow it, and you will, and you have, that is to turn you back to me. Because you can never keep these standards, and I can never keep these standards. Morality, as the center point, as the guiding principle for your life and for my life, is never going to lead to life. It's always going to lead to self-righteousness, frustration, and anger. And God is offering to us here, guys, here's an opportunity to turn the hearts of your children back to me when they mess up, to walk with them and talk with them and say, hey, listen, you blew it again with your sister, didn't you? You blew it again with your brother. I've been there. And you know what we need? We need to confess that. And we need to turn back and ask Jesus to forgive us again for this. And we need to take a moment to thank him for the forgiveness on the cross that covers this sin. We need to turn the hearts of our kids Turn our hearts back to the cross where hope and life and righteousness comes from. And we need to use the words at home, the language at home that makes it real. That Jesus' righteousness and faith covers my failings. Morality, morality will lead to a lifeless existence. But Jesus' offer is, I've done it. I've done it. Trust me. Believe in me. This morning, I don't know where, where you all stand. You know, I've got a lot of eyes looking at me this morning. Um, and I don't know all of you. I know many of you, but not all. This morning, if you're, you're here and you're thinking, man, I don't know this Jesus like that. and I can't talk like that. I can't express it like that. I don't have that kind of faith yet. And you want to take the conversation further. Let's do it. Let's do it this morning. Myself, Pastor Joel, Pastor Dell, who is up here as well, would all be glad to carry on the conversation with you or with the person who brought you this morning. Whatever you do, basing our lives around Being moral and conforming is always going to fail you, will always fail me, and is always meant to turn us to the real hope of Jesus. Let's pray together. Our good God and Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the reminders that we need to reorient our lives for when we fail, when we blow it, that we were never expected. To make it in the first place but there is no one righteous there's no one who seeks God there's no one who will ever claim I never sinned never said that thought that never did that this is us and so when we fail father I pray for courage for us for the men and women the young men the young women this morning the boys and girls sitting here this morning that when we fail, that our default behavior is not to come back and beat ourselves up to try to be better people. What a worthless cause that is. But that through our failings, we become conscious of our sin and therefore become more conscious of our Savior. I pray for the men in this congregation, especially the fathers, that you would give the fathers the courage to speak at home about their faith with language that makes it real for their children and with their wives pray for the wives here the moms who are often with their children at the most nurturing of times that you would give them the insight and the patience because honestly sometimes all it is about is just getting through the day and changing diapers and bibs and and uh, getting lunches ready and kind of handling uh, financial aid applications and all these things that happen with moms and dads. But I pray that in the middle of all of that, that there is this drumbeat that goes on within our homes that says Jesus and the cross are our hope and our righteousness. I thank you, Father, that at the end of the day, you're stronger than us. You're You're able. To do what we can never do on our own. That through the resurrection, Jesus has come to life. Returned, if you will, from death. And given us the way, the hope, and the life. And That you are God who is very able, even though we are not. Give us courage, I pray. In Jesus' name.